Spectrums next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon. I'm your host, Brad Swift. Today's interview is with UC Berkeley professor Stephen Glazer. Stephen is a faculty member of the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering, He is currently the Intelligent Infrastructure Team Leader for CITRUS, the Center for Information Technology Research in Service to Society. He is also a distinguished affiliated professor at the Technical University of Munich in Germany. In our interview, Stephen Glazer talks about engineering education, his research, and field projects. On to the interview. Stephen Glazer, welcome to Spectrum. Thank you. Thank you for having me. With increasing frequency, I hear engineers suggesting that engineering education needs to engage students' imaginations and provide more opportunity for them to design and build things from day one when they start an education in engineering. What are your feelings about the future of engineering education? Well, it's in a way, it's two pieces. So what kids aren't doing nowadays is playing with physical things when they're young. So they're not necessarily running around in the woods with their friends, tearing stuff up. They're not working on cars. They're not building radios. So when they want to go out and do things in a laboratory or do things in the field, it's very difficult for them. So that would be something good to bring back. On the other hand, if they want to do computery things, everything's fine and dandy because they have the experience doing that. Then my lab... I have my own machine shop. I have a lathe, a bandsaw, and mill, and, and whatnot. And I'm lucky to have students. I have two of them now that are very good machinists. So my so, students all have to be able to do things with their hands. I've been lucky enough to attract them. Is it too late to sort of introduce that into the curriculum in college as an undergraduate? Would engineering benefit from a studio? Oh, I think it would, and I think you're starting to see that. I guess it's the maker movement, it's sometimes called. Our dean, Sastry, is very into that now. And do you feel that a somewhat unconventional path to becoming an engineer is an advantage? In a way, but it, it's not cost-effective if everybody has an unconventional path. I think you gain a lot. I think you see engineering more broadly, and I, I think we see different types of solutions with a broader background. How would you characterize the conventional path in engineering? The conventional path would be somebody who, you know, was good in math and science, hopefully somebody who was interested in things. And they've taken math and science in high school. They come in, they do their engineering, which is quite focused because we have so much to learn, and go off to work. And... They're going to be better at certain things. When I finished high school, I was going to go off become a philosophy major, which I did. I didn't take math senior year. 
I didn't need it. I was going to be a liberal arts student. So the students that do have this better background, they're always going to be better in math than me because they learned the fundamentals when they were young instead of me having to pick it up when I was 30. Your path, the choices you made going into philosophy and then pretty radically altering even from that into being an operations engineer. How were you thinking about engineering at that point? I never followed a path. I kind of followed what I was interested in, mm -hmm. and things led to another. So I always read from a very, very young age and, you know, literature, technical pieces. I always worked on things, whether it was building models when I was very young or go-karts, fixing cars and whatnot. So I always was a very good mechanic, studied philosophy, and that whole time I was working construction. I got in the operating engineers union while I was still in college. So I went through the apprentice program there, learning to operate heavy equipment, fix heavy equipment, then worked as a driller for about eight years. So I was fixing things, working with soils. Then I worked for a year in Iraq. My boss there uh, had a background of being a operating engineer and then going to school and him and his wife talked me into oh you need to become an engineer and I don't know one thing led to another and here I am I never planned on being a faculty member in fact when I finished my PhD I didn't want to be a faculty member pieces just happened and here I am at Berkeley what sort of drilling were you doing uh, we were drilling deep foundations so uh, it might be a five foot diameter hole a hundred foot deep which we then use for foundations, for buildings, for retaining walls, for subway excavations, uh, subway stations. I did a lot of work on the red line and the subway in Washington, D.C. Our guest today is Stephen Glazer. In the next segment, he talks about two of his research projects, one in the lab and one in the field. This is KALX Berkeley. Can you give us an overview of your research? We have a number of projects, different yet they have some fundamental similarities. One of the projects, Laboratory Earthquakes, I design and make a particularly fine nano-seismic sensor so I can measure displacements down to a picometer. That's 10 to the minus 12th, very, very small, and I can measure signals dead accurately for a very wide frequency band from about 10 kilohertz to 2 megahertz. So I got like the ultimate seismometer. So then I can set up experiments in the lab where I can control the geometry so I know all the mathematical descriptions of the system. I have my perfect sensors. I can load in conditions that I know what's going on. And then when I pick up the signals from the small earthquakes we cause, I can start looking at very small details, like what are the little motions that lead up to large sliding. So I have a block of plexiglass on a very big plate of plexiglass so my earthquake is when the whole block moves. But something has to happen before we get frictional movement. And I believe you keep looking smaller and smaller. You have these small little contact disparities. You have to have little pops of these small areas. And then when you get a chain reaction, each pop releases a little energy to the contacts around it. And, you know, at some magic point, 
enough energy is released that all the contacts start popping and you get an earthquake. And from the lab to a real-world setting, how are you translating that kind of work into something that could be in the field? Good question, and it's not universally (laughs) accepted. The material we're using, we're not using rock, we're using plexiglass, but at the stresses we're working with, it models ductile rock very well, so rock that might be on parts of the San Andreas. There's theories and lots of work that shows that the way the geometry of contacts is fractal, so it scales self-similarly, so my surface on a small slider block actually can scale in terms of geometry to a very large fault. We just had a paper in Nature that Certain earthquakes have lots of high-frequency shaking, so the ground shakes more rapidly. The higher frequencies are more dangerous because it reaches the uh, resonant frequency of structure, so there's more damage. Tohoku earthquake was particularly rich in high frequency. How do you explain it? So my student had some ideas, and it turns out it has to do with how long the fault heals between earthquakes. So we could show the mechanism in the lab, the mechanism in the field. So now we have an explanation of what's going on in the field instead of strictly an observation. But I can control things in the laboratory and see that, yes, it was due to this factor. So the healing is the time between earthquakes when the stasis is stable? Right, because the surfaces, chemical reactions, they start to melt together on some level. Even simply putting a block on a table, the longer it sits, the frictional resistance does go up Mm -hmm. because it's chemical reactions that are giving us our shear strength. And then some of your other research? A big project looking at snow hydrology in the Sierras. This is important because the state gets about 65% of the water from snow in the Sierras. And it turns out we don't know beans about how much snow is in the Sierras. You have... Frank Gerke goes out a few times in the winter. He goes to, let's say, 40 sites in the Sierra, sticks his pole in the ground, and that really isn't giving us much information about how much snow there is. So what we do is we go into a basin. We'll pick a patch approximately a square kilometer, put in, let's say, 20 sensing stations, each one measuring snow depth, temperature, humidity, solar radiation, soil moisture at four depths in the soil and matrix suction at four depths in the soil. We report back the data every 15 minutes, and then we might put like an American River Basin, which we're working on now. We'll have 18 such networks spread across the basin, and we end up with a network of networks. So each of these local networks sends back to ourselves here, either by cell phone modem or satellite modem, the data will come back here. So then you can correlate all that and create real-time? We have real-time data, and our application we're working on now is, is hydroelectric generation. So we're working with the state, with the Department of Water Resources. Uh, we're starting to work with PG&E and Southern California Edison on doing demonstration projects. And ultimately then, with the success of these, you would want to see this proliferate across the Sierras? So that we want to do the whole Sierras. 
and we'd like to take these pieces and make a larger system, which would be a water information system for the state, where we would also bring in groundwater information. Groundwater isn't regulated, and we know really little about the groundwater situation. But the general project would be through Citrus, our Center for Information Technology Research for the Interest of Society. That's one of the CISI four centers that were started by Gray Davis. And we're interdisciplinary in the building. We have people from law, from art production, from various engineering, all working together, sitting together to look at societal problems. And part of the goals of the CISI Institute's the four across the state, is to take the knowledge from campus and put it in a form that it'll help the financial well-being of the state and the physical well-being, emotional well-being of the state. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Our guest today is Stephen Glazer. In the next segment, he talks about his geothermal project. Let's talk a little bit about your geothermal research that you're doing. And oh, we have an interesting experiment because we can blow ourselves up. <laughs> First, we start with the idea of enhanced geothermal systems. So we usually think of a geothermal system like at the geysers up by Santa Rosa where there's natural water and you stick a straw in the ground and steam comes up and runs your generator. But that's exceedingly rare. I think the geysers might be the only field in the world that's making profit without any kind of subsidy. So what we do have is lots of hot dry rock. There's hot rock everywhere. So the idea is you would drill two wells. You would connect them through fractured rock. You'd pump cold water down one well, push it through the fractured hot rock, and pull hot water out of the other and make a cycle. Run that through the generator, then pump it back down. There's been a lot of work. We're slowly moving towards that becoming a reality. But there's this idea that you could use supercritical CO2, so that's CO2 under very high pressure, that... It's not quite a liquid. It's not quite a gas, but it has good heat-carrying capacities, but very low friction, very low, uh, I should say, viscosity because it's a fluid. However, nobody has done any measurements with the heat capacity, the state behavior of supercritical CO2 going through hot porous media. So that's what we're doing. The models show one thing, but is it true? We're running experiments in the lab, and we can go up to 5,000 PSI pressure and 200 degrees centigrade, so fairly extreme conditions. We run the CO2 through a pressure vessel filled with sand, and then the vessel's heated, and we can do all sorts of measurements inside, outside the vessel, the volume flowing through, the mass flowing through, how the heat is taken from the sand into the fluid as it moves through the column. And we can then verify the models, help the modelers improve their program. And we've just written a paper where what we noticed is that there's a change in the conductivity of the CO2 as it changes temperature that's large enough that it causes problems in the model because the model doesn't take it into account. So 
this will give us a more realistic view whether the scheme actually is so much more efficient than using water. Now that we're talking about geology, do you have any comments about fracking? It's become sort of the controversy du jour. Yeah, I think the New York Times is kind of responsible for that. In and of itself, fracking is just fine. I think what we've seen with gas production, there's a loophole in the EPA laws and in a lot of states. They're very strict with fracturing for oil production. And you don't hear horror stories about oil production fracturing and it's done all the time. So the gas, the problems is that they don't take proper care with the fracking fluid. They're not careful with how they cement in their pipes, a variety of pieces like that. So it's the way the operations are done. It isn't inherently a problem with fracking. And by being careful, you're probably meaning spending money to do it, right? Spending money, right. And that's the motivation to do it haphazardly is you can do it cheaply. Right, because in in the end, you need to do something with the fracking fluid. And if you just dump it on site, that's obviously cheaper than trucking it away and treating it. If you think about it, the fractures you're growing are on the – order of meters, tens of meters, and they're taking place a kilometer deep. They are not affecting the surface. They're not affecting the aquifers. The problems would be that the pipe which you're pumping the pressurized fluid down, if there's leaks there, that would affect the near-surface water. You're pulling the gas out. Well, if the pipe isn't cemented in very well, then you would have leakage of gas. But it can be done totally safely. So it's really a matter of getting the regulation right and getting it's the enforcement in place. And right, exactly. Does the physical makeup of the shale make the fracking process? Uh, do you need to be more cautious in that environment? Or are there some side effects to that that don't happen in other geological but formations? Each formation is going to be different. What you would watch out for in your design and operation in general, you know, if we leave out the poor operation, is that you don't want to damage your petroleum reservoir. So think of it as a layer of rock that has the gas, and then you'd have a cap and then a cap beneath it. And if you run your fractures through your cap, then you might lose your natural gas to some other formation. The chance of it going a kilometer and a half to the surface is pretty insignificant. And from a given fracture, there isn't that much gas coming out anyway. You've got to have lots and lots of fractures. Because shale's pretty well impermeable. That's why we thought we'd never get any kind of petroleum production out of the shales. This is KALX Berkeley. The show is Spectrum. Our guest is Professor Stephen Glazer, a civil and environmental engineer. With smart infrastructure, kind of a focus of citrus, is there growing concern that the Internet is being seen as not so secure? There's a tremendous amount of work being done now on on cybersecurity. One way around it might be to have, you know, like a a private Internet because actually to have a communication system with, let's say, water and power utilities – There is no reason to also be able to access Facebook off of that. In a way, our telephone system is a pretty complex system, wide-ranging system that is much more secure. So 
the military has their own system. But there's a lot of work being done on that. We're not worrying about it. We can use you know, the encryption that's available now. Uh, does it mean that the Chinese government can't hack it? Yeah, of course they can't. But they don't care how much snow is at Big Creek. If the internet becomes a means for people to do political action by denial of service and then everybody's kind of shut down, slowed down, right. things aren't operating, that's the more broadly based concern that I would hope is being worked on. But you're pulled in two directions because one, by making the internet so democratic and open, it's open to people who want to make mischief as well as people who want to use it legitimately you know, the more freedom you have, the easier it is to take advantage. And you kind of then have to say, well, yeah, like our legal system, it's worth a couple of guilty people getting away with a crime than having an innocent person go to jail. So I think as a society, we have to decide where we want to be on this. And it's certainly not an easy question to look at. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you want to talk about? Oh, maybe the fine quality of our students here at Cal. I think we sometimes forget, but then I talk with friends at other schools, and it's pretty amazing with the quality of, of people we have here. And it, it makes my life tremendously easier. What is it about the students that you uh, notice in terms of their um, capabilities or their personalities? They're really interested in what they're doing. They're interested in understanding what they're doing. They're interested in doing new things. They're interested in enhancing knowledge, and they're interested in working hard. Sounds like a, a good environment to be a teacher. Your <clears throat> teaching responsibilities are what now? I teach a graduate class on sensors and signal interpretation. I teach an undergraduate class on geological engineering. Great. Stephen Glazier, thanks very much for coming on Spectrum. Brad, thank you for having me. Spectrum shows are archived on iTunes University. We have created a short link to the Spectrum Archive. Type tinyurl.com slash K-A-L-X Spectrum. That's tinyurl.com slash Calix Spectrum. Spectrum is to present news stories we find interesting. Rick Karnaski and I present the news. Nature News reports that UCLA chemistry professor Patrick Heron will stand trial for three counts of violating health and safety standards over the 2008 death of one of his research assistants. Shiharbano Sanji suffered third-degree burns after the tert butyl lithium she was drawing from a vial caught fire. She was not wearing a lab coat. Heron could face four and a half years in jail. The UC regents made a plea agreement for their own role in the accident last year. President of the Laboratory Safety Institute, Jim Kaufman, calls the case a game-changer that will significantly affect how people think about their responsibilities. Fizz.org reports a study that began during the postdoctoral work of Northern Arizona's universities 
Gregory Caparasso, is shedding light on how adults and their dogs and kids share microbial communities. Caparasso, an assistant professor of biology, says what we've been learning is the microbial communities that live in and on our bodies can play a big role in our health. What was exciting about this study was how cohabitation affected microbial communities. It's a unique data set. We all have bacteria in our digestive tract, but Caparasso explained that while any two humans are 99% identical in their genomes, their gut communities of bacteria may be up to 50% different. It's those differences that interest researchers who seek to link them to the origins of obesity, malnutrition, or even colon cancer. Caparasso asks, what factors are driving the difference between the microbial communities in my gut and your gut? This study was an attempt to see if who you're living with is one of the factors. As it turns out, individuals from the same household, particularly couples, share more of their microbiome than they do with other individuals. And having a dog resulted in an even greater similarity because of shared contact with the animal. also mention a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Rick Karneski joins me for the calendar. Later today, physicist Fabiola Gionati, co-discoverer of the Higgs boson at the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, Switzerland, will deliver a free public lecture titled The Higgs Boson and Our Life. The talk is part of a three-day celebration of the work of University of California, Berkeley physicist Bruno Zumino, whose theory of supersymmetry has emerged as a possible explanation for the number and variety of fundamental particles seen in nature. That's today, Friday, May 3rd, 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. at the Chevron Auditorium International House, 2299 Piedmont Avenue in Berkeley. Spectrum airs at the same time as NPR's Science Friday. And we thank you for choosing us. But next week, you'll have two chances to catch their team in the Bay Area. The Jasper Ridge Biological Preserve is celebrating their 40th anniversary. Science Friday's Ira Flato will discuss reviving the science-statecraft dialogue with Professor for Interdisciplinary Environmental Studies at Stanford, Christopher Field, co-founder of Method, Adam Lowry, and NOAA director, Jane Lubchenco, on Thursday, May 9th, at 5.30 p.m. This event takes place at the Semex Auditorium, 641 Night Way in Palo Alto. Then, on Friday, May 10th, there will be a live broadcast of Science Friday at 10 a.m. at the Li Ka Shing Center at Stanford. These events are free, but will be first come, first serve. For details, go to jrbp.stanford.edu. Best-selling author Mary Roach returns to The Bone Room Presents for a talk and signing of her latest book, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal. In Gulp, America's funniest science writer, so says the Washington Post, takes us down the hatch on an unforgettable tour of our insides. That's Thursday, May 9th, 
7 p.m. to 9 p.m. It's a free event at the Bone Room, 1573 Solano Avenue in Berkeley. Wonderfest is having a free event at the Soma Street Food Park, 428 11th Street in San Francisco, on Tuesday, May 14th at 7 p.m. Elliot Quatrit, professor of astronomy and physics at UC Berkeley, will be discussing the modern origin story, from the Big Bang to habitable planets. He'll describe how the universe evolved from its smooth beginnings to its current chunky state, emphasizing how gravity reigns supreme and builds up the planets, stars, and galaxies required for biological evolution. Visit wonderfest.org for more info. Science at the Theater presents Eight Big Ideas. Eight Berkeley Lab scientists present eight game-changing concepts in eight minutes each. That's Monday, May 13th, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. at the Berkeley Repertory Theater, 2025 Addison Street in downtown Berkeley. This event is free. music heard during the show is written and produced by Alex Simon. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.